Driving it home with Patty Vasquez, Patty Vasquez. From global conflicts to greenhouse gases, the folks refusing to wear masks says, and politicians getting caught grabbing asses says, she's driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Hello. I, you know what? That time I really did hit a button. I slammed something down running in here because traffic sped right. Well, I don't know if you're speeding in traffic, if you even have the space to speed in traffic. But uh, yeah, I put myself down and I hit a button and I didn't break the whole state. I don't think I broke the whole station. Let me know if you can hear me. But uh, we are uh, live in the uh, WCPT studios. Tomorrow, though, we'll be broadcasting from Tata's Tacos, where I'm broadcasting live uh, before my comedy show, where we have... Uh, uh, we're going to be doing a fundraiser for Kids Above All, one of our sponsors for Driving at Home. We'll be benefiting uh, their holiday drive to make sure that kids can celebrate the way everybody would love to. You know, make it a little magical for some kids who have survived trauma, uh, who are either living in group homes or in foster homes, need some early childhood care. And uh, so we're excited to do that. Tomorrow we'll be featuring on the comedy show Janice Rodriguez, Lele Mason, Bill Gorgo, and Anthony Fuentes. And uh, the reason I hit something, I hit a button, Andy, by the way, is because uh, we have some equipment we're going to try out for making sure that at some point when I do these remote broadcasts, we can continue to do the Facebook Live. Let me know. Are we thumbs up on the Facebook Live stream? We're good. Awesome. So we've got, uh, we want to make sure that we can uh, share that video and audio as well. So we're experimenting a little bit. I've got some, uh, a little thing, a little crank here thing. I don't know if I got this wrong. Anyway, hi. I am easily distracted, aren't I? But you know what I'm not going to lose focus on? The relief I feel that Reverend Warnock won last night. I'm not relieved that he won by such a close margin. For a while there, I thought it was going to be a blowout, or at least significantly better than the uh, couple of points that it it turned out to be. And of course, today, all the Republican pundits uh, talking about how, well, why don't don't Republicans like to vote by mail? Hmm. I don't. What, what, why do you think that is? Maybe all of the fear-mongering for the last several years about how all the false ballots and ending up in creeks and uh, turning up in an uh, ice float or something, uh, maybe that's why Republicans are less likely to vote by mail and uh, did not do so this time around. So very excited. 773-763-9278. How are you feeling today? What's on your mind? Uh, as we have our conversation, we've got great interviews coming up in the second half hour. We are going to talk to you about a couple of authors, including we've got uh, a book called Photos from the Front Lines, A Year on the Streets of Alameda County, written and photographed by Derek Hanley. And then coming up after that, I don't have any of, I have nothing. I have no notes. <laughs> we have a show coming up. We have Blair Kamen coming up at six o'clock. A, a architecture a writer for the, and critic, architecture critic for the Chicago Tribune, has compiled, compiled uh, a, an incredible collection of his columns as well as framing it in whose city is this? Whose city? Whose city? Who's who's the city for? Pardon me. Who's the city for? And it's really uh, fascinating. Uh, piece of work by him and the photographer, and I'll get that information as soon as I can reach my my computer, but they they compiled this uh, framing of Chicago about, you know, where you know where our architecture is going, who enjoys our city, how we enjoy our city, what services are accessed, kind of the, the way in which the city has obviously this downtown and using the bean, as we now call it, into the cloud gate, that reflection of the city is really this, the beautiful skyline where there are $10 million condoms 
condominiums and, of course, our lakefront, where we have basically uh, built this entire uh, arena of in pleasure, whether it's our parks or restaurants or condominiums and beautiful homes. And the rest of the city, the neighborhoods that are not funded the same way, not addressed in the same uh, manner in which we, we don't uplift those communities because, well, it's not pretty enough or that's where the black and brown people live. And if you think that I'm being a little too uh, broad brush with this, we know for decades, for over a century, there was redlining. There was uh, really there was um, this drive to not allow people of color, black people, primarily in the late 1800s and the black migration into the early 1900s, uh, could only live in certain neighborhoods and were choked off from the ability to for upward mobility when it came to property owning, when it, whether it was loans or rent, rentals. Um, you know, and and now, of course, Latinos tended to migrate to neighborhoods like Back of the Yards or Pilsen or Humboldt. Uh, and again, a lot of people drawn here by the work and the people who profited from it got to buy those beautiful homes and live in those great com- condominiums. And yet the communities where people live and work ended up with disproportionate amount of pollution, uh, lack of services when it comes to education and health care, including mental health. And yes, we do have a significant amount of crime. We do have, uh, people, when, we, when we isolate communities and say the rest of the city is not for you, it's going to bubble up. So that's going to be a conversation that we have with Blair coming up at 6 o'clock. And then again, we'll talk to, uh, we'll talk to Derek O'Hanley at 6.30, who's done this great book um, where he followed medics from Falcone, uh, Falk. Almeida County Ambulance during one of the most tumultuous years uh, in 2020. In the middle of a global pandemic, uh, there were wildfires and mass vaccinations. And uh, this is a coverage of a year that, from perspective of what it was like to be on the front lines every day in the middle of a crisis. So that'll come up at 630. The phone lines are open. 773-763-9278 is the number to call and join our conversation. Another story that emerged last night, uh, there was a call to 911 last night, a teenager who is struggling with... um, uh, depression and anxiety and who had recently come out in the last year is bisexual to her family and f- publicly they seem to not be tolerant of people who want to love who they love um, they had this teenager had had inflicted wounds on themselves and uh, was taken to the hospital and uh, pe- the family is asking for uh, privacy and uh, and to respect uh, what they're going through right now and in the meantime the father uh, Ted Cruz I'm sure would like us all to pay attention to Hunter Biden snorting coke and uh, whether or not his penis should be on Twitter so I, I that's all I'm saying I'm just uh, not connecting the two it's just a dichotomy of the way people behave in the middle of a crisis it is tragic that this young person does not feel supported does not feel safe uh, doesn't is looking for a way out it is tragic it, and it's it is startling that there were no statements similar to what uh, folks are asking for. The no words of "I hope that everything's okay," "I'm so sorry for your loss" or tragedy to the families who lost fa- loved ones in the Club Q shootings. Uh, because what I'm saying is, when you f- foster hate and when you demonize a group, and 
encourage not just hatred, but violence against them. Things like Club Q in Colorado are going to happen. We still don't know what's going on in North Carolina where this power grid, they're calling it vandalism. 40,000 people in North Carolina lost power. And it seems as though it was because there was going to be a drag event that night. People have died because they were living in Uh, assisted care living situations. Uh, Babies had to be airlifted from the hospitals to other NICUs because there was not any power to those hospitals. So please, by all means, uh, let's respect the families who are struggling right now and uh, and hopefully uplift those in North Carolina who are struggling, those who are struggling in Colorado, those in any community where people are isolated, marginalized, and felt to make, made to feel as though they are not desiring of love they're not deserving of love uh it is uh it's a lot it's a lot going on uh, but we do celebrate the victory of reverend warnock and uh fortunately now he can breathe he has won four times in two years and now he can breathe a little bit and go to the work of serving the people for the next six years and uh and i congratulate everyone that worked on that campaign everyone that uh, made phone calls and wrote postcards folks that flew down to atlanta to go door to door to inform people of where their voting locations were of informing them of the dates when they could or couldn't vote because of course they limited uh, access to the polling places uh where previously folks could go vote on sundays but that was changed and fortunately they were able to uh, vote early in many locations so we uh we are Congratulate everyone that supported. If you chipped in a dollar to make sure that uh, Warnock had everything he needed or to any of the organizations that were committed to making sure that people's voices were heard, because really that's what this is all about, is reflecting the wishes of the people. And, of course, a lot of jokes today about Herschel Walker um, that, uh, you know, he needed this free time because the full moon is coming up and he's going to be busy because I believe he chose werewolf over vampire. I'm not really sure. But uh, but now he can spend his free time doing that. Let's take a break here. 773-763-9278 is a number to call and join our conversation anytime at 773-763-9278. And, of course, these conversations made possible by our sponsors, Minocqua Brewery. And we thank you so much. And we're going to be at a, at a tasting. We'll have a live event next week on the 14th. And uh, we are going to have a live event tomorrow. I believe we're going to have a live event maybe remotely uh, at uh, on Monday. There's a 40th Ward Dems event coming up on Monday, uh, December 12th. So we might be there for that event. And uh, and then on the 14th, we're going to be at uh, in, uh, I think we're going to be in Rogers Park. I'll get all the information. I can't see. This is what happens when I don't have my phone. <laughs> Set up. More in a moment on WCPT 820, Heartland Signal. We are driving it home until 7. I'm your host, Patty Vasquez. Hi, this is Kirk Bankstead from the Minocqua Brewing Company, and I sell progressive beer like AOC IPA and Bernie Brew, a lovingly irascible Democratic Socialist lager. A percentage of the proceeds of every beer I sell goes to helping keep Wisconsin blue and driving the Trump cult out of our state. Enjoy a great craft beer and help your dysfunctional neighbor to the north get its democracy back. Now available at Arminetti Wine and Spirits in Woodstock, Illinois, and Famous Liquors in Lombard, as well as in Chicago at A&S Wine and Spirits, Back of the Yards, and Grand Western Liquors, Ukrainian Village. Please drink responsibly. On January 6, 2021, followers of Trump and something called QAnon attempted a coup at the United States Capitol. Who are these people? I want to live with the QAnon girl. I could be happy the rest of my life with a QAnon girl. Believer. 
to the right. She never gets weary of being gullible and white. She's my QAnon girl. And like members of any cult, these folks seem willing to follow the directions of their leaders, no matter how irrational or insane or stupid they may be. She likes crazy leaders. She likes worshiping. She learned from a young age to believe anything. She's my QAnon girl. She voted for Trump twice. She bows at his feet. He promised her he'd kill the liberal elite for my QAnon girl. Here is what is expected of the members of a cult. Excessively zealous and unquestioning commitment to the leader and to the leader's belief system, ideology, and practices as if they were the absolute truth, the absolute law. The leader dictates how members should act, think, and feel. And, of course, whether acts of treason are really patriotism. She's out at the Capitol now, getting maced right now. She's never been denied. Poor baby, she's entitled and white, 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 lily white. And as an added bonus, members of QAnon have been convinced that the left in the United States is a cabal of Satan-worshipping cannibalistic pedophiles who organize themselves in the basements of pizza parlors which don't have basements. And they firmly believe, from the very depths of their soul, that the only person, the only entity in the entire universe who can save us from the cabal of Satan-worshipping cannibalistic pedophiles... I, uh, I don't think Steve Goody meant to make this a love song to Marjorie Green Taylor, but the Marjorie Trader... Marjorie Trader, I apologize. Uh, I don't think he meant that, but it turns out that that's what it is. Uh, we So I just got a text about the event coming up uh, next week on December 14th. We are going to be doing a, a progressive beer tasting, quality progressive beer tasting. Uh, that's going to be from 5.30 to 7.30 and a percentage of the prof- profits uh, are going to be donated to progressive causes and reproductive rights groups. And there's a there's just a $5, just a $5 tasting fee, which again is going to be donated to Planned Parenthood. It's going to be a taste, food and wine at 1506 West Jarvis Avenue. That's, like I said, in, in Rogers Park. And if you want more information, you can give them a call. That's at 773-763-3663. Again, we'll be at Taste Food and Wine on Jarvis over by there in Rogers Park on December 14th, starting at 530. Tomorrow, I will be live broadcasting from Tata's Tacos starting at 5 o'clock. And then our comedy show is at 8 o'clock. There is no cover for our comedy show, but of course, we would love donations to Kids Above All. And a portion of all sales will be going to Kids Above All. Uh, Dave, so I feel like not enough people are, are following this story. So you are following this story about the power generator in North Carolina? Well, a little, yeah, that, where they shot it out and that and cut the power. But what I was confused about, like I mentioned to the screener, now, these, like we're saying that the power goes out for some of these people. Are you talking about at their individual homes or a hospital? Everything. Yeah, the whole city. No, 40,000 people without power when this happened right, well, on Saturday night. Yep. It's, that's terrorism. I'm confused about hospitals are supposed to have auxiliary generators that kick in when the power goes out. Well, all I know is that they had to airlift. Uh, they had to airlift NICU babies out of the hospital. I, I don't know how much. If you have, if you have a backup power generator, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of the equipment and everything that needs to be powered up has that. Because a power generator is usually a, a, a backup one is usually at a much lower level, isn't it? Well, 
from what I remember, because see, that used to be my job when I was in service, but not at the main hospital. But I could have got a job when I got out years back, but I never followed up with it. And they they had some big, at the time, big diesel, you know, uh, like, oh, God, 100, 200 KWs, you know. So when it went out, boom. It, and then they'd have to periodically every couple of months, you know, kick them on and make sure it worked, you know, and stuff like that for if an emergency hit. That's the only thing I don't follow on that. If it was a hospital that did have no power, I don't know why, you know. Well, I will look into the uh, the reports of babies having to be airlifted, but that, those those are the stories that I was uh, looking at that uh, they were they no, needed just, to be moved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I just uh, find that kind of puzzling because of the fact that they had them for contingencies like that. You know that uh, that they're wired up. In here, the hold on a second. Here comes Matt, our uh, operations manager. Here, Matt Cummings is joining us on the air. Hey, Matt, go ahead. Hey, how's it going? Hi, Dave. Hi, Matt. Um, most generators, they work for emergency outages mm-hmm. that are short term. So mm-hmm. if, uh, you know, unless they're fed by a gas line or something, they will have limited uh, fuel to run. So they will last for a certain amount of hours. And this has gone on for days and days. So it would have yeah. exhausted the emergency backup generators fuel supply. Yeah, like I say, I remember years, they're talking almost 45 years ago, and they had was diesel, you know, big, but like you say, there's only a finite amount of, uh, of uh, fuel in that. And, right. So, this is, if, and, and by the way, today is Wednesday. They still do not have full power back to this area in North Carolina. So presumably... Yeah, they're hoping by tonight. Right. So they, yeah. 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 So I'm saying... Okay, no, I kind of so that's what, right five days, like, six days? Right. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember even one time when I was station in Hawaii for a while, they had a uh, big tropical storm, and I had to go power up the emergency room. That time, I had to lug my portable. Yeah, I, I have been out. I've been out in the sleet and rain trying to get the generator to kick on before the UPS runs out. It's uh, yeah, it's it's Here. not fun. Schools are closed. So some of the people even got the ones that are hooked up to their gas lines in their homes. If it kicks out, then you know. Sure, I'm sure that I'm yep. sure that some do, but not everybody not does. Everybody does, but uh, right. So schools schools are closed. Uh, by the, so this is this is affecting people at all different at all different levels as far as their safety and access to the resources they normally rely on. Okay, oh, just a thought, you know, because I knew what I used to have to do when I was in, and but like we say, both agree on the fact that there is a finite amount of you know. Uh, to run it, you know, fuel, either gas, and I would think more like diesel instead of gasoline because you kind of a little bit more vulnerable. But, uh, right. Um, okay. Anywho. Thanks, Dave. Lot, you know. Yep. Be well. You too. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. So this is uh, so schools are closed until Thursday. The Red Cross is running emergency shel- emergency emergency shelters to provide food, uh, showers, and other services to people who have been impacted. So this is this had a significant. Have you have you read this story? Yeah, Matt? and and I know it's. Uh, most likely because uh, they didn't want the drag show to take place. Right. Well, and they found bullet casings. Yeah. Right. And, well, the reaction from people. One woman said, "I know why it happened," and the sheriff showed up. The sheriff showed up, and uh, she was like, "Oh no, I mean, because you know, God didn't want that to happen. I didn't mean that I had anything to do with it." And then you've got law enforcement saying, "This is God's country." Something like this. I mean, this is not what is happening. Yeah, because God wants people to have to be transferred from one hospital to another. Right. Exactly. That's, that's it. That's since, how that works. Since you're here, uh, can I ask you a question? So we are going to be brought. 
broadcasting from uh, Tata's uh, tomorrow, and Jerry has supplied me with some stuff. So, but if I do Facebook Live, right, it's only gonna you're only gonna be able to possibly hear the interview between me and a guest that's live there. Obviously, we can't do anything to hook up by phone, right? Correct. Yes. I'm just I'm just trying to figure out. Yeah. Yep. At some point, well, we'll talk about that offline. But so I have two, I have two phones. I don't know how, to, but it can only come from my Facebook page, right? The Patty Vasquez Show page is where we're going to direct people for a Facebook Live. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Uh, what else do I want to ask you about Facebook Live? Yep. <laughs> we're doing our best, folks. Especially because I come blasting in here after I oh after after I come if I get after I get off of work. By the way, we did a, a tree lighting at the uh, controller's office today. I'm wondering when we're going to have the big WCPT tree lighting event here. Oh, we, we lit it. Oh, you lit it. Yeah. You just push the button and yeah, no ceremony, yeah, no, no like nothing. Yeah, it's it's all no no yeah. no retrospective. I can't, of, I can't remember having a tree here. Do, do we have a tree here? I don't think so. Mm, all right, then. We have puzzles in the uh, yeah. conference room. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about traveling to France at all, to Paris? Please? No? Um, well, yeah. I, uh, my wife and I went uh, celebrating 25 years uh, last month, uh, or I guess two months ago now, October. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we went to Paris for our, you know, to celebrate the anniversary. It was it, fantastic. And how hard was it to leave Paris knowing that... Uh, yeah. yeah. I would still be there if I could. <laughs> Did they? Uh, was there an attitude about being an American? Is it worse? Not at all. Really? None whatsoever. You're kidding me. So you must you must blend in better than I do. Not that I've been to Paris, but in London, uh, I definitely got singled out as being a loud American. Maybe once uh, there was um, some uh, some people begging for money, and I probably gave them money, and the locals said, "Don't give them money." Yeah, basically, you know, no, they're, that's terrible. <laughs> They're they're not who they say they are. I said I know they're not who they say they are, but they need money. Yeah. So I I had some some cash that I in my pocket, and I gave them a little bit of money. All right, yeah. I got yelled at by the locals. <laughs> well, I've talked to people who work with uh, with those who are struggling to find shelter and services, and they say, I mean, one of the things that they say locally, by the way, is uh, sometimes a gift card is really good for like being able to go to the bathroom at McDonald's and things like that. But other than that, they say if you want to give them something, it's cash. Yeah, yeah. I don't, it, Unless they're specifically asking for food, uh, you know, I, I buy food for people right regularly. You and, know. That, what would you say was the best meal? I asked you this last week, and you're like, I can't just pick one. Yeah, um, there's, I don't know, there's everything blended in, but um, it was all so good. Yeah, I'm super uh, jealous. The, the, the croque monsieur, their little ham sandwich with the bra- um, broiled cheese on the top, it was fantastic. Okay. Um, just, uh, you know, the, the escargot was great, the different, uh, the different ways they cooked it, you know, both in shell and out. Do you like it with a little puff pastry on it? I like it when it's in a little cup with like, because sometimes I do it in little pockets of like oil and garlic. But My favorite l- was in the shell where you had to dig it out. Really? Yeah. Did that have a little bit of a, a, the, like a white wine sauce? Uh, there or? was sauce in it. Yeah. yeah the garlic, uh, you know, yeah. Some people are grossed out by that sauce. stuff, but I, I love, I Look, love. if they're eating it, I, you know, I'll try it. Right, exactly. Now, have you eaten live bugs before, though? That's something I was, I was, I was thinking. Is that I like snails inadvertently. Inadvertently. <laughs> when you go for a walk, yeah, you're like, right. oh, ah. that was a bug in my throat. Yeah. <laughs> you don't, you don't seek it out. No. Is what you're saying. All right, before, not to say I wouldn't. Right, right. Well, there, like, there are companies that make cricket powder for like in place of protein. I don't, I don't know why. Why, why are we so afraid of these things? In fact, yeah, my daughter is a. Uh, She's a pescatarian. Uh-huh. She she chooses not to eat meat uh, that she, she says are sentient beings. So uh, you know, so it's uh, 
uh, morals for her. Okay. But she said, yeah. She, uh, so we were asking, would you eat the snails? And she said, I think I would. Right. You know, and then I said, well, would you eat bugs? Go, I would probably eat bugs. Sure. But not, uh, you know, yeah, things that, you know, things that you would squish going, okay. Or that other people might squish. <laughs> right. She she would not. But so and for fish, so they're not sentient because they don't travel in packs. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't, I, I don't fight it. No, got, don't she, hey. Yeah, she yeah. she she's, she says she'll eat fish, so I'm and, not going to fight it. And God bless you for that, because my dad made fun of me for being mm-hmm. a vegetarian for a few years when I was younger. No, I'm yeah. trying to be supportive. Yes, and that's good. For, it's good for everybody. Yep. Well, thank you so much for coming in yep. and clarifying no about gen- Yeah, I, 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 my understanding is that emergency generators can only provide so much power for only a certain amount. Right, of time. unless you have a generator that is hooked to a natural gas line that gets unlimited power, you know, unlimited fuel, then right. then it could conceivably run forever. You know, what? I might have you come back and, and experiment with these little microphones. Let's take a break here. I'll do traffic and see if you want to help me play with these uh, cords. <laughs> My Matt is watching me yeah. untangle this and going, oh, she's never going to take any of the equipment from the station again. <laughs> Let's take a break here. More after this on WCPT 820. Don't forget, you can switch over to heartlandsignal.com and WCPT820.com to listen to the show online or tune in or watch us on the Facebook live stream. You can see me playing with a bunch of cords. More after this. I'll update you on traffic. There's new information. Explosive new information. It's how every day starts. The need for information. Get the info you need from Santita Jackson. Weekday morning starting at 6 on WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820. Here's the latest Chicago traffic and weather update. <laughs> Some got busy, some got lazy, some got creative, some went crazy. Couch potatoes, avoiding respirators, we all got pretty big round the equator. Shopping online, working online, zooming all day, no pants, that's fine. Hiding at home from civilization, here's what I did over my pandemic vacation. In chronological order, more or less, with the non-political songs first. Because not everybody wants to hear what I think politically, and I understand that. But honestly, how could anyone get through the past 18 months without one political thought? Ooh, that reminds me. In addition to doing the live show broadcast from Tata's Tacos tomorrow, I'll be there at 5 o'clock. Tata's uh, Tata's, uh, Kitchen and Social. It's one of her amazing locations. Such good food. I'll be broadcasting starting at 5 o'clock, and our comedy show is at 8 o'clock. And then during the live comedy show that we're doing at Tata's, at some point when the comics are on stage, I'll also be doing the virtual comedy show that I've been doing every single week, with exception of a a couple where I just lost track of what day it was. We'll be doing that starting at 8 o'clock, and I'll be jumping on at 8.40 for a patty melt where for three minutes I rant about something that either is uh, happening politically or in my life. Uh, I don't know what it'll be. It depends on what happens. Like some days uh, I've noticed that people are driving very, uh, not just erratically. Look, for for decades, uh, the way people drive has gotten worse and worse, whether it's speeding, blowing through stoplights, not stopping at stop signs. Yesterday, a mother in a community here in Chicago posted a video in fr- that uh, showed the way all every single driver rolled through a, a stop sign. Um, I wish I had something to give away so I could ask people what a complete stop is. Andy, and no one can see you do this, but do you know what your body does when your car comes to a complete stop at a stop sign? 
Do you know what the car supposed to, what's supposed to happen? It, it, you lunge forward a little bit because that's a car rolling to a complete stop. How many people, I mean, do you think anybody even does it anymore? I try to. You, do you roll it to a complete, Andy raises his hand and says, absolutely, you come to a complete stop at every intersection. Do you also know where you're supposed to stop? And so, I know you can't chime in with the, there's no mic connection there, but there's a solid white line. It's the stop line. The intersection, the markings of an intersection is not where you're supposed to stop. You're not supposed to stop in the pedestrian crosswalk. You're not supposed to stop uh, just on those lines. There's another line. Maybe it's not always there, but if there is a big, bold, thick, white line at the stop sign, you're supposed to stop prior to that line. And I saw this woman just get dragged on social media, on Twitter, uh, that, you know, basically calling her Karen, clutching her pearls in Lincoln Park. And I was jumping in. I'm like, there, and I shared the law. The state law is that you have to come to a complete stop. A complete stop is when you stop your car, the momentum of having being in motion uh, and then stopping. It's physics. I got a D in it, so bear with me. But it rolls forward a little bit and then, and then it bounces back. And that's a complete stop, folks. Uh, the the stop signs. I don't care what folklore or legends that you heard of. The ones with the white border, not optional. Not a single stop sign is optional. Uh, b- but this is in front of a school where a child was killed last year, and this mother is trying to draw attention to it. She wants something that mitigates the traffic at that intersection. We've talked to our friends uh, from Better Street Chicago about what we can do to imp- improve safety. And when you improve safety, you improve the quality of life. Uh, it you know maybe it's just even if these you know whether it's a roundabout or a bump out or all these different ways that we design uh, a mitigation of traffic a way to slow down traffic slow it, so we, we're trying to intervene with the number of lives that are lost and people who are injured or scared to be afraid to even ride their bikes or walk across a crosswalk uh, yeah you know what it is annoying I hate it there's a bump out right here on Milwaukee Avenue and every day I take a left I curse John Arena because uh, he put that there but I get it I actually at the end of the day I get that it slows traffic down it's just it is actually much harder to take a left off of my street now um, but what it should come down to and, and unfortunately we have to find artificial ways to do this is mindful driving we're all you know even before we all had cell phones people were terrible drivers but now they're distracted by their phones by their radio they're eating mindful driving I wish that was what we taught in high school was mindful driving do what you are doing now uh, I don't care if there's nobody in the crosswalk because at any second a, a kid can roll through on a bike a ball can roll into the intersection. Anything can happen. And yeah, be aware. Someone just texted me from my house. Hi, honey. Uh, be aware. We need to start learning about pedestrian crosswalks. In the middle of some of these really busy streets, including Milwaukee Avenue, there are these very bold fluorescent signs that show a pedestrian holding the hand of a child, meaning be aware that a crosswalk is coming up. And this is where people cross. I remember when I was running for office in the 19th district in front of the Jefferson Park train station. I mean, I could, I was so surprised that nobody got hurt. There is a dedicated crosswalk right there in front of Weston's, and there are there's an island there. I don't know if we need flashing lights at these crosswalks, but folks, uh, 
I get it. I used to be you. The whole idea of cars win is not acceptable in the light of people dying and being hit by drivers who won't slow down, who won't follow the rules of the the road. Um, So, yeah, you know what? In the absence of that, of doing the right thing, let's continue to do bump outs. We have to do roundabouts. We have to do uh, flashing pedestrian crosswalks. And we also have to find people. I say we start putting fine. We have I've you know how many times I've gotten a, a a, a, a speeding ticket over on Lawrence. They put up new cameras there. And uh, man, those things are sensitive. And there's some areas where they are reimbursing people and reversing the decision of uh, of speeding tickets. Whenever I get one, I'm like, eh, you probably got me. And uh, that's my stupid tax. That's my being a, uh, an, an attentive driver and not paying attention to how fast I was going. Um, people, we need to start, you know what, take that. When you get those fines, take it as a like, okay. Uh, let's not do that again. How can I be more mindful of how I am driving? Uh, because uh, this is this is again. I keep saying this. It is not sustainable. We've got folks who ride their bikes, and they deserve as much protection. And I get it. You get mad at people who uh, ride their bikes and race through an intersection. They don't obey the laws of the land. It doesn't mean that we should make them unsafe. That's not the the answer to that. Isn't drive them off the road. There's a great video. I posted this on my Twitter account a couple of days ago. Uh, when they do the driving test for bus drivers in Mexico. They make them ride a stationary bike, and they, Andy, they get a, the the bus drivers get like you can see all the guys. You guys see this video? All the the bus drivers are on a stationary bike as another bus comes up behind them, and just barely. I wonder how many of them have actually been hit, but you see them all go like this, so that they know what they are doing, what it feels like to be vulnerable in traffic, exposed, and riding their bikes. On the other hand, Mexico does it. Mexico City, at least, does a much better job of having dedicated bike lanes. And I I will say this over and over again. Paint is not protection when it comes to our bike lanes. We need dedicated, protected bike lanes with a curb, with islands. Um, The first time I ever saw that, I was at the University of Illinois uh, when I was a freshman, and they had entire dedicated lanes with their own curbs, one lane in each direction, clearly painted, with yellow yellow paint on those curbs so that they were reflective if, if someone was riding at night. And uh, and look, I have to do better. I have to do better about uh, wearing a helmet. Uh, sometimes I I don't plan ahead very well. I wish there was some way, like uh, I mean, obviously an inflatable hel- helmet wouldn't work. Something that I just I could have in the event that I go. Oh, you know what would help me right now is just jump on one of these divvies. It is the greatest feeling to be downtown and and I, I walk a lot, uh, but I often walk to uh, meet my husband to have uh, for Declan's therapy sessions for PT at Shirley. Shirley Ryan and uh, I'll be like okay I'm not going to make it I'm going to hop on a bike or uh, by the way I also use a Lime scooter don't do these things without a bike helmet if you're riding on the streets of Chicago Um, but I've done it uh, when push came to shove to get there on time I just wish I had some way of uh, also traveling I can't I'm not going to travel with a helmet every single day you don't want to rent one Uh, of course I'm a girl I'm like this is going to ruin my bangs Uh, let's take a break here 773-763-9278 to join our conversation and uh, oh, oh, the uh, my husband messaged me to tell me that the the signal is fading for him at home. Uh, sweetie, switch over to HeartlandSignal.com or WCPT820.com. You can also watch the live stream if you bothered to get on Facebook. I should give my husband my password to my uh, Facebook account. He refuses to join social media, and uh, that's because he's one of the smart ones. More in a moment. I will take your calls when we come back and your texts as well.
You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820. taking an extra moment. I'm trying to set up this uh, Facebook Live because we want to experiment with it uh, in order to do our remote broadcast tomorrow at Tata's Kitchen and Social. I'm very excited about this show tomorrow. I, uh, it's it's going to be a busy day and uh, we're also going to be, I believe, we're going to be at the 40th Ward uh, event on uh, Monday at Whiskey Girl with Maggie O'Keefe. Uh, you know, this is one of the things, uh, you know, people wonder, how do I get involved? What can I do more? Yes, we've gotten through the midterm elections. We have gotten through the special election in Atlanta. Chicago, uh, keep up that energy, keep up that momentum because there are very important, well, not just Chicago, but throughout Illinois, there are some important municipality races coming up. Of course, we have the mayoral race with over 11 candidates. Uh, There will be forums all over the Chicagoland area. I'm going to attend one on uh, Tuesday, uh, despite the people that might be putting it together. It's by a lot of different organizations, so I will soothe myself with uh, the, no, the the knowledge that uh, there will be some friendly faces there. There might not be. It's politics. Uh, you know, one of the things that they say in politics when I was running, um, they said, uh, you know, you talk about people, you have to call everyone. When you decide to run for office, you have to call everyone you've ever known, uh, no matter what. I mean, I know it sounds daunting. I called people that I had, falling, had fallen out with, and believe it or not, I mean, like really ugly uh, fallouts with with, uh, some friends who... Uh, I had one friend who uh, told me he really he he, he was he was so um, just nasty to me one night and I just never talked to him again. And he was angry about the way I was talking. Uh, he had run for office and I and I didn't know what it was like on, on that side of it. And I, he dropped out and I was really disappointed and, and uh, maybe had a couple two three one night. And I was like, you know what? Why did you drop out of that race? You're a great candidate. And, it, and I I know now that uh, I was coming from a place of believing in him so much. And so disappointed because people, you know, the good people don't run. They're driven out by the process. And knowing on the other side of what it's like, although I didn't, I didn't drop out, but I still, sorry, Mark. Um, but I, you know, we connected. We hadn't spoken in about eight years. And I said, hey, uh, I know we haven't talked in a long time. Uh, you said some really nasty things and I said some aggressive things. Um, but I wanted you to know. And he said, uh, he said, I'm really proud of you for making this phone call. Um so I, I it's it, you have to call every single person, that you know, what, what candidates go through. If you know someone in your life who, you know, is a good person and they tell you you're running, they're running for office, do everything you can to help them, whether it's money or volunteering, writing postcards, uh, making phone calls, going door to door with them. If you know someone that is running for office that you've known for a long time or a short time, but you know that at their core, they're a good person, support them in any way you can because it is a grueling process. It is gut-wrenching. Um, and what I was getting to is it is a, a game of addition. You're supposed to bring more people in. And, and I've chosen to, uh, I've, I'm coming from the angle of holding people accountable. I don't know that I will ever run for office. Uh, when I uh, completed the race and we fell short by a f- just a few points, uh, I, you know, 
I had thought that I would run again, and people kept asking me almost right away, hey, will you run against this candidate? Will you run against that candidate? Will you run for alderwoman? Will you? And I said, look, I, I know what this takes. And if you believe in me enough, then you have, then, then I need you to drop a poll in the field. I want to know what the numbers look like in this race. Is the incumbent popular? Are they, are, do people even know their name if there's name recognition? And you're seeing some of these polls come out. Uh, about a week ago, there was a poll, and it was a sampling of only 616 people for the mayoral race in Chicago. And from those numbers, it looks like a head-to-head race between Chewy Garcia and Lori Lightfoot. A lot of folks, you know, are going to need to know the other candidates. And a lot of folks are like, they're already writing off the rest of the candidates. And I want to tell you right now, slow down. Because uh, you know what the polling numbers were for Lori Lightfoot three weeks away from the, the election? Under 3%. She was polling at about 2.7%. And she finished in the top two. And in a lot of these races in your neighborhoods, there's potential for someone to not win flat out in that election. Uh, In Chicago, the candidates need to win 50 plus one in the election. There is no primary. uh, But if a candidate is not able to win with 50 plus one, there is a runoff between the top two candidates, which is why I'm with the fair vote people. We would have saved so much trouble and and it's possible we would have ended up with a different choice had we employed rank choice voting in the election between uh, after Rahm Emanuel left and we had uh, Tony Preckwinkle, Lloyd Lightfoot, Susanna Mendoza. We had uh, Willie Wilson, uh, Bill Daly, uh, just a field of almost the exact same size as we are looking at right now. So um, don't write anybody off. Do your due diligence. Learn about these candidates. And if you find one that you like, maybe it's not someone you know personally, support the candidates. Uh, if you know that if, if something clicks for you, it resonates with you, get involved in that race in whatever way you can. I know uh, we're all stretched thin. It's the holidays. You don't want to think about it. I'm planting this seed now. Uh, maybe you can't do it before New Year's, but once uh, once you, you know, make your new, new Year's resolution to find a candidate that you believe in, whether it's for mayor, for alderman, because these are the races that matter. Uh, I was just talking about road safety. This is something that, that a lot of folks are passionate about, whether it's or public transportation. Maybe it's the schools. Maybe it's the parks. Find the candidate that reflects your values the most. And I mentioned this yesterday. Uh, one of the uh, podcasters and uh, inter- the uh, Twitter stars, that's um, po- politics girl, has a great rant about how she says, look, I, you know, I'm I'm a Democrat only because she actually says I'm not a Democrat. I'm a liberal. And right now, the party that reflects my values, that fights for equality and justice under the law are the Democrats. If that changes someday, if by some chance the Republicans change their tack and, and are able to reflect the values that I believe in the most, then I would I would be a Republican. That, that's, you know, what whole idea that like, oh, it was the Democrats that owned slaves and they were the ones that were fighting against them. Fine, because at that time, they did not embody the values that I believe in now in in 2022. They believed in preserving this this, uh, horrific system of making people chattel of enslaving them, of torturing them, of selling their children, forcing, raping women. I mean, yeah, fine. They were Democrats at the time. They weren't liberals, though. You know who was a liberal, at least to the best of his ability, was Abraham Lincoln. He was a liberal. He was a progressive. He read things in a way that he believed was going to improve the quality of life 
for every human being. He believed, and yeah, did he have some flawed thoughts along the way, thinking that maybe we just support all the black people? But he changed his mind. He evolved, and I've said this again and again. So I'm a liberal, but I'm also a progressive. And for me, a progressive is somebody who maybe has believed something for a long time, has done things a certain way because of tradition or habit, and I get new information and I go, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. I, I mentioned this with cycling, with bicyclists. I used to be annoyed by cyclists that were weaving in and out of traffic and blowing through stop signs and riding on the sidewalk. You know, and I'm like, hey, you know, why should I, you know, be aware, be worried about your safety when you don't even follow the rules of, of the, the streets, right, of the of traffic? You know, and then I took a step back and I started following some of these stories of people who make their living riding their bikes or that's how they commute. Some people don't drive. They they always walk. They always ride public trans- transportation. My attitude used to be cars won. Get over it. And you know what that is? That's a conservative type of attitude. Uh, you know, get over it. We get to have guns at any in any form without restrictions whatsoever. That's conservative. A progressive goes. You know what? The Second Amendment. It has its it has its benefits. Maybe personally, I think that uh, the more uh, I look at stories from around the world where they have eliminated gun violence, that looks really good to me. But at this point, uh, we have more guns than people in the United States. We have more guns than people, and not every person has a gun. So that means like somebody out there has a ton of guns, and it's not necessary. A conservative says it's without regulation, and we can have as many guns as we want with as many bullets and as big of a magazine as we want. Oh, man, I really hope the Democrats in Springfield are able to uh, pass legislation that restricts the sale of military-style weapons, uh, weapons that that, uh, can slaughter children, rip them in half so that they are unidentifiable to their family members, to the coroner. I mean, really, how— when honestly, when Sandy Hook happened, even when uh, the shooting at the movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, I thought like in these instances, every time I thought, well, certainly now people will see that we have to have some sort of gun legislation. We have to have some sort of sensible approach to how guns are bought and sold. Nope. Sandy Hook, seven year old children slaughtered at Christmas time. So surely now we'll do something to restrict access to it. And, and, it, and for every time this happens, well, what we have is a mental health crisis. Great. Spend some money on mental health. Let's invest in making sure let's 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 enact legislation where every year you have to you got at least check in. Right. You got at least. No, I'm saying like if, if you believed that. But no, nothing. No change in approach or funding when it comes to mental health. But just sell and guns sell more when those tragedies happen, people panic. The the Second Amendment people constantly are saying, oh, they're going to come and take our guns because these kids got killed. And yet again, we have to have respect for a legislator uh, whose uh, family member uh, feels that they are not protected and safe. Uh, but when children are slaughtered in their classroom, let's give them more guns. I don't, I don't even know where I was going with all this. I'm just saying the difference between a liberal and a conservative. Uh, liberals, in my mind, believe. Is there someone just calling and wants to yell at me, Andy? No? <laughs> I just see this number that keeps popping up. Let's take a break here. Uh, we are going to check in with uh, we're going to check in with the author of Who's the City For? We're going to check in with. Uh, ooh, 
I'm looking at what our lineup for uh, what we're going to do next week as well. But I got to check in with what we're doing for today. We are going to check in with uh, with with our friend Blair Kamen, who wrote the book "Who Is This City For." He's an architect, architecture critic, and writer, and has written an incredible book. So we'll have a conversation when we come back in just a moment on WCPT 820 Heartland Signal. I should have pushed a button. All the energy here. This is me. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820. Hi, I'm really excited to uh, talk to our next guest. We have Blair Kamen on the line with us who has written the book, Who's the City For? Hey, Blair, am I saying everything right? Your last name and the title of the book? Hey, Patty, you got it 100% right. Outstanding. Okay, first, let us let me talk a little bit about your background uh, as an architecture critic, yes? Yeah, um, I was the architecture critic at the Chicago Tribune for 28 years. Uh, I left the paper uh, about a year ago, and or pardon me, two years ago. Uh, time flies. And um, the new book is a collection of 55 of my columns. It spans roughly the um, a decade. It's from the uh, 2011 to 2021. And in it are columns about everything from the Donald Trump sign on Trump Tower to um, uh, Emma Till's house uh, on the south side to um, leaving Tribune Tower. Uh, and what that what that was like for me when we moved uh, to another building. Well, you know, I just had Scott Stantis in uh, studio on Monday, uh, who is the uh, political cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune, and he had this really lovely office just off the newsroom. Did you have an office, or were you also were you in a cubicle at the Tribune Tower? Oh no, cartoonists get a, get offices. <laughs> I, I just got a, a cube, you know, in with everybody else. Well, because I saw that newsroom at uh, Prudential One, and it was it was it was uh, tragic is the only way I can really think of it. I mean, I just laughed at Scott. I was like, oh, I felt so bad for him because he and Eric Zorn were basically like knee to knee on these little ledges for your laptops, essentially, right? Yeah, um, I mean, my space at Prudential One actually was pretty decent. Um, I like just by chance, some of the critics were grouped in an area where we could look out the window and see like the backside of the Pritzker Pavilion at Millennium Park. So actually, I wasn't complaining, whereas other people kind of had to step down in their in their quarters. Yeah, <laughs> right. If if you have, you know, it's kind of like whenever there's a recession, I'm always like, I didn't have that much to begin with, so this feels normal. So that's kind of like what you were going through. There you go. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That was that was kind of my situation. Yeah, uh, I get that. I get that. So, had, had, did you set out, uh, you know, to to be an architecture critic? What was your, you know, when you you know studied journalism and and wanted to write? Was it always with a, a bent towards architecture or city planning? No, it wasn't. I mean, I grew up. I'm from New Jersey. I grew up in a newspaper family. My dad was the editor of the local newspaper in the Jersey Shore town of Red Bank. Um, so um, my life changed when I went to college, um, Amherst College in Western Massachusetts. I took a course in Gothic architecture from a great professor who delivered fantastic lectures about um, Chard, Amiens, Notre Dame, the great Gothic cathedrals. And that's what really got me interested in architecture as a subject. For a while, I toyed with the idea of becoming an architect, but honestly, I don't draw very well. So um, I think I made the right choice. I had friends at the University of Illinois who uh, studied architecture. I had a friend who came all the way from Hawaii to study in Illinois, and I felt so bad for her because that had to be a big step down. What was it like coming from the East Coast to Chicago? 
Well, actually, I came from Des Moines to oh. Chicago. <laughs> so a step after, up. <laughs> uh, exactly. After, uh, uh, you know, my graduate studies, um, I, I worked for the Des Moines Register for three years. And uh, as soon as I got there, I started sending uh, my clips to the Chicago Tribune, desperately hoping that they would hire me. And uh, after three years, they finally did. And um, about five years after that, I got to succeed the great Paul Gap as the Tribune's architecture critic. Outstanding. And, and for, for, from, for this book, the conversation about what you've written, had you, previ- had you always had an eye toward uh, the, the not, and, and look, any architecture should be, what is the purpose, not just of the people that will live there or work there, but its place in the community and the city? itself. When did was that always something that you kind of had an eye toward because of your interest in architecture? Oh, so back in 1998, I wrote a series of articles for the Tribune called "Reinventing the Lakefront," and the series, um, the most important story in the series, contrasted. Um, the conditions of the North Lakefront in Chicago with the South Lakefront. The North Lakefront had better acreage, better access, better amenities, better everything. Uh, and in part, large part because it was lined by white affluent neighborhoods. The South Lakefront, in contrast, had uh, a thin strip of parkland with a seawall that looked like it had been bombed. Um, it had mm. rickety pedestrian bridges that led to it from the neighborhood's to the West, and it had like almost no amenities. So, and of course, this um, part of the lakefront was lined by neighborhoods that were largely poor and black. So um, I've been writing about questions of equity for literally decades. Um, And this is like, so the subject of this book, equity, um, is hardly new. It's been a thread that's extended through my writing since really ever since I started at the Tribune. Um, One of the first things, actually, that um, I was involved with there was an architecture competition for um, improving the Cabrini-Green public housing development. And that led to a series of articles on um, good low-income housing, uh, where I went all over the country, looked at the best low-income housing, and in order to try to provide examples that were far better than Chicago's high-rise public housing projects. Well, and staying there for a moment, where did you find uh, where they might have been doing a better job or, you know, the pinnacle of what could be accomplished when we talk about low- or mixed-income housing? Um, Boston had some terrific um, low-income housing designed by... um, uh, outstanding architects from that city. And in fact, one of them, the firm of Goody Clancy, was eventually hired to do the master plan for redeveloping the Cabrini Green area, making an area. The idea was really based on uh, um, the remake of a uh, public housing development in Boston called Harbor Point, uh, pardon me, called Columbia Point, which became Harbor Point. Um, It was a typical high-rise public housing project, um, stark, modernist towers of brick, uh, sitting in relative isolation. Instead, the architects um, uh, drew the city street grid and other boulevards uh, through that development. They renovated some of the high-rises. They put in low-rise housing that looked like the architecture in the rest of Boston. They took advantage of the beautiful over-the-harbor views to attract a mix of income groups. 
And, um, you know, it, it's largely a success. Now, that's not to say that everything in Chicago that's happened around, say, Cabrini Green or the Robert Taylor Homes has been a success, far from it. But, um, you know, as I said, the um, these are questions uh, that have always fascinated me. And to me, architecture was never just about high-style buildings like skyscrapers, museums. It was about um, the spaces we live with on a day-to-day basis, parks, plazas, um, CTA stations, uh, river walks, all kinds of things that are you know, have often been wrongly characterized as ordinary and not really worth paying attention to. But in fact, they're the things that do so much more than just isolated objects to shape our quality of life. Speaking of the parks, what, what were your thoughts when you learned about the the um, curfew for uh, getting in, access to Millennium Park, Grant Park, that area after, you know, large groups of people were going downtown? Because for and I'll just say that because I grew up in Chicago and my parents used to take me to the Taste of Chicago or to Navy Pier. And I would go on field trips to the Lyric Opera or the the uh, Chicago Sympathy or, or Orchestra and things like that. And a lot of kids from other communities. And, and when you talk about I love that you talk about when we say Equity, it's about whose share, right? Like sharing the city. And that, that struck me so deeply because when I heard about the curfew, I thought, you know, we're deciding who gets to be here and who doesn't instead of like what, what caused these groups of people to go downtown, right? What were your, did you have yeah, any thoughts I about mean, that? Yeah. Well, well, first of all, you raise a really important point, which is that when I talk about equity, I'm not just talking about the conventional meaning of the term, which is to um, provide fair treatment for neighborhoods that traditionally have gotten the short end of the stick, I borrow from the financial meaning of the word as in equities or stocks. And so I think of equity as affecting everybody, not just the poor, um, because equity suggests what we share, the, the, the built environment that we share. And Millennium Park is part of that. And I mean, I was certainly disappointed by the fact that Mayor Lightfoot felt the need to impose a curfew. Um, And yet, you know, because, I mean, the interesting thing about the book is that the book looks at Chicago as a tale of two cities. The cover has the bean, you know, right out there, uh, right there on the cover. And yet, when I was writing the book, um, toward the end, a shooting occurred, um, a fatal shooting occurred near the bean. And so all of a sudden, this wall between these two cities, um, the the glittering downtown and the struggling neighborhoods of the south and west sides um, broke down. Uh, and so sadly, because all of a sudden, you know, the problems that had kind of been cordoned off in other parts of the city um, swept into Millennium Park, this kind of joyful, very democratic public space. And it was, you know, really a kind of telling moment because for so many years, Chicago has tried to cordon off these problems, keep them away from downtown. And here they were, um, you know, disrupting the very kind of symbol of Chicago, um, the the symbol that Chicago likes to you know, think of itself as a, a modern, glistening, global, cosmopolitan city. So that was a, a very sad and telling moment when the city, you know, put up fences and curfews and they felt they had no choice, um, you know, but to restore order in this park. And, 
um, the fact that they had to do that really said a lot about the, the sad state of things in this city. We are talking to Blair Kamen. He is the former architecture critic for the Chicago Tribune, and he's written the book, Who is the City For?, with photography, incredible photography, by, I'm going to find it, Lee Bay, uh, your former rival from the Chicago Sun-Times. <laughs> well, you know, let's, That's right. Let's talk about the uh, this collaboration. When we come back, we're ta- again, we're talking to Blair Kamen. And you can get these books uh, wherever books are, uh, are, are sold. And you can also, these are from the University of the U Chicago Press. So you can go to press.uchicago.edu, and we'll continue our conversation when we come back in just a moment on Driving It Home with me, Patty Vasquez, on WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820. Which means you are listening to our conversation with Blair Kamen, whose new book, Who is the City For?, is available now on Amazon.com. And this is with a photography by Lee Bay, the book Architecture, Equity, and the Public Realm in Chicago. All the stuff I love talking about, Blair. I mean, this is, uh, I've, I've lived here my entire life, and uh, and I, I just, your your framing of this is, is so important. And one of the things that you mentioned, too, is uh, Trump Tower. How big are the letters on Trump Tower, by the way? They are more than 20 feet high, and they, those five letters, extend almost half the length of a football field. Um, it seems big. That, that does make sense. So let's go back for a moment. When when he slapped those letters on the side of the building, and, and look, the Tribune Tower, like Tribune had it, but it, it, it fit the architecture of it, and this was different. Are there any other buildings like it that have the lettering that way, or was it really just that we hate, hated Trump even then? I uh, as Crane's Chicago business showed in a graphic, um, other Chicago buildings had signs, but the Trump sign was by far and away the biggest, the hugest, the most ginormous, and in my view, the most grotesque, because it hung directly over the downtown Riverwalk. And, I mean, that really gets to the issue of the book. Who is the city for? Who is the downtown riverfront for? For Donald Trump, of course, it was all about him. He wanted his name in giant letters um, only about 10 or 15 stories up. In other words, usually signs go near the top of the building. Trump wanted to put them at the bottom where everybody crossing the DuSable Michigan Avenue Bridge could see them and, and along the Riverwalk. Well, this is one of the great public spaces of Chicago. And here's this guy, this, you know, narcissistic New Yorker barging into Chicago, building a pretty good tower after a lot of criticism from me, and then, um, you know, marring it with this ridiculously large sign. It, it was crazy. And it still is. I, I have to agree with you, and I hadn't even thought of it. Is that, is that if it had been up high, we wouldn't even we wouldn't even be able to see it that well. It wouldn't look as imposing and as obnoxious as it does. Has Chicago changed any sort of legislation in regards to how big signage can be and how low? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in response to my columns on this, uh, Rahm Emanuel got the city council to pass legislation, which created a riverfront sign district, which regulated the signs and prevented the um, a repeat 
of the Trump sign. But of course, they couldn't get rid of the Trump sign because it had already been approved by actually by Daly's administration. So interestingly, now the Chicago Tribune editorial board just popped uh, an editorial saying, get rid of the Trump sign. They reversed their previous position for two reasons. Uh, their previous position had been, you know, the sign stinks, but we don't have any recourse. You, you got to keep it there. And they just said, look, two things changed their mind. Number one, Trump just said we should terminate the Constitution. <laughs> Number two, the Trump organization, the organization that built Trump Tower in Chicago, just got convicted of tax fraud. So the, the Tribune is saying, um, you know, it's time. Get rid of this thing. It's it's an eyesore. It mars our landscape, and it stands for things that are completely antithetical to democracy, to Chicago values, etc. Look, um, there may be lawyers who say, you know, the convicted Trump organization still has some property rights. But if I were king, and of course I'm not, uh, I'd get rid of that thing, you know, faster than you can say, um, you know, um, I don't know. you know, whatever, TJT, <laughs> faster than you can say TFG. Yeah, that? there you go. You can say, you can use the initials uh, TFG, and uh, people think it's the former guy, but uh, I use the F for something else. But anyway, um, that effing guy, that's fine. I think we can say that. Uh, but that's just me. What are your thoughts on this? So I, when I'm coming down the Kennedy, and before all of this happened, and that building was going up, uh, that tower, I thought, well, that, it added, it, as you mentioned, it was a pretty, it's a pretty nice building and i thought it added something to our skyline how Mm -hmm. great is it that i i think that gene gang's uh building now draws the eye that way instead of just this this one building in between the sears tower and john hancock that's my impression anyway yeah i agree with you i think um gene gang's uh saint regis tower which was originally called vista is a very very handsome addition to the skyline and and really to the street level around it too i mean look that that, like the Trump Tower and one Bennett Park, is a building for the top 1%. Yeah. Let's face it. I mean, you know, the condos there ain't cheap. Um, but it really contributes something to the broader public realm. Um, Jeannie designed it as a, as a, a series of three, like, stacks that uh, step upward as they go, as the building goes from the lake to the, toward the center of downtown, the loop. Um, and each of these stalks or stacks has a kind of curving appearance to it. And the curves really play off beautifully on, on each other. Um, in addition, the, the building um, creates a connection between the downtown Riverwalk and the park at Lake Shore East. So it's really a good citizen. It isn't just an object that's sitting there. And I think it's one of the one of the better additions to the skyline, um, you know, um, that we've seen in, in many, many years. It's it's a better skyline presence than the Trump Tower, and it and fortunately it isn't marred by a giant sign either. And you know, this it's a remarkable city. I'm so excited to to, to have this conversation with you, and I, I would love to have you know like a series of conversations because we've we've touched on so many different things with this sort of uh, you know co- like collision of uh, you know you mentioned that these towers, these apartments, and people that are going to enjoy them uh, are the elite. And and I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll walk around and look at some of the amazing houses in, in Lincoln Park or off the Gold Coast or you know by Lincoln Park, and I'm like, who? What do these people do for a living? 
living. I mean, like how many, <laughs> how many millionaires do we have? Um, but you know, beautiful landscapes. But one of the things that that struck me as well, in addition to your uh, conversation about equity and meaning share, uh, and what we all what we all take part in, is the idea that these beautiful parks and access to the lakefront uh, are really designed and and enriched for the people that already come from really posh backgrounds, and where we have people whose dwellings are small and cramped and in dirty neighborhoods, their parks are pretty much forgotten, aren't they? Well, I mean, that was certainly the situation along the lakefront uh, in 1998 when I wrote that series. Things have changed, though. I mean, um, you know, the city uh, built new bridges, new beautiful new pedestrian bridges along just south to Saddle Lakeshore Drive. It put up um, a marina. Uh, new playgrounds. It expanded um, the acreage of the parks down there. So actually, in in those uh, in those in that area at least, things improved. But I think you're quite right. In the main, in other words, quite often places like Millennium Park or Maggie Daly Park or the Nature Boardwalk at Lincoln Park Zoo wind up uh, in areas that are already really nice, and the people there, you know, aren't struggling to make a living or struggling through gun violence, it's really the poorer areas of the city that need the best amenities, the best parks, and as, as, as well, you know, thriving neighborhoods that have good housing, good retail, good businesses. And so this is one of the things that Mayor Lightfoot is at least trying to do with her Invest Southwest program. This program is directing $2.2 billion in private and public investment to 10 um, commercial quarters on the south and west sides. Nothing's been constructed yet, but construction is supposed to start soon. And this is really a very significant shift in city policy because it it's taking um, putting an emphasis on uh, struggling neighborhoods rather than the downtown. And it's using public-private partnerships, the very vehicle that built Millennium Park, to um, – improve uh, conditions, you know, for neighborhoods that have long suffered through disinvestment um, and discrimination and deindustrialization. So that's a significant shift. And whether or not Lightfoot is reelected, I really hope that this program uh, continues because it has great promise for neighborhoods like Englewood, Austin, uh, and other neighborhoods that have, you know, really struggled in recent years. Oh, man, I could talk to you for the next hour, uh, but I would love to invite you back if I could for the beginning of the new year. Uh, or, and I would encourage folks, if you love this city the way I love this city, and it sounds like Blair Kamen loves this city, uh, pick up a copy. Buy a copy for everybody that you know and tell them they've got to read Who is the City For? It's really an incredible conversation and incredible writing and photography by Lee Bay. Uh, so this is available. You can find it anywhere books are found, but particularly you can go to Amazon.com. How's January look for you? Can I have you back? Absolutely. You know, uh, anytime. I'm always happy to talk to you. Thank you so much for reading the book so carefully and thoughtfully. And I'm always happy to come back and talk about whatever subject you want. Well, that's the thing. I'm not saying I finished it. That's why I want to have you back so I can talk about more stuff. Because there's there's really, I mean, but this also, you know, leans into a lot of the conversations that I have about uh, about the city in particular. I grew up in Norwood Park, so we can talk about that next time. And and the access that I had, whether it was the Blue Line or to services and living in a neighborhood that was safe because most of the firefighters and cops, you know, live either here or in Beverly. So, I mean, that's a lot of what you write about is, you know, who lives where and 
what the city who who is the city for and I grew up believing that this was my city and uh, I'm learning more and more about how that isn't true for a lot of people so I'm so grateful that you you and Lee made this book thank you so much the city should be for everybody that's the, yes that, that's the point and yeah. uh, that's not to achieve but thank you so much Patty it's really really great to talk to you thank you so much have a lovely holiday season and we will talk to you in the new year my friend that sounds great thanks again thank you thank you have a good evening and let's take a break here and I'll update everybody on traffic and continue we'll have another author on we're going to have uh, Derek O'Hanley on in just a few moments again the book is Who is the City For available on on Amazon.com by Blair Kamen K-A-M-I-N and Lee Bay his photography is featured there more in a moment on WCPT 820 you're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820 Thank you so much for continuing to join us for this conversation brought to you by Kids Above All, European and U.S. Car Service, and our friends at Monaco Brewing. All of them are our friends. I'm thrilled to bring this next conversation to you. We have another author and, and a photojournalist. We have photos from the front lines a year on the streets of Alameda County, and I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. We have on the line with us Derek O'Hanley. Derek, is it Alameda or Alameda? The natives would call it Alameda, Patty. Okay, just making sure. I, I have a Latino background, but I'm not going to, I don't presume that everything is pronounced the same. Uh, what, a rem- what a remarkable book. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about your background. I know that you're a veteran, and, uh, and you found that photography was something that gave you the ability to tell stories in a different way. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, sure. So I, I have a background uh, as a, a paramedic in the U.S. Air Force. And I uh, did that for four years, active duty. Um, got out, worked as a civilian paramedic for a little bit in upstate New York, where I'm from originally. And then I had um, joined up with the U.S. Army, did a tour National Guard with them uh, as a combat medic. And then in 2012, moved out to California to help a friend start a photo and video production business. Um, and when I was out in the field previously, uh, I brought a small camera with me just to kind of document some of the crazy scenes that we see and, um, you know, some of my fellow providers that I served with and whatnot. And I think that was kind of the genesis for this project um, when it came into being uh, and kind of melding my two backgrounds of the medical side and the artistic more photographic side um, and being able to create this project and tell these stories that probably otherwise would have not have been told. And this was, you had, I mean, obviously you had no idea when you embarked on this journey of embedding with uh, paramedics and, you know, frontline responders. I mean, there was no way to know that a worldwide pandemic was on its way. And that changed everything. I mean, what an incredible uh, circumstance, uh, for better or for worse, and for what you captured. uh, We're we're grateful that you were there to uh, really create, really, not just something for people to understand better, but a historical document, right? Agreed. Yeah. When I started the project, it was just me getting out in the field to get to know the crews and get to know the service area. Um, I never, you know, I worked as a paramedic in Texas when I was active duty and back in New York and stuff. Never worked in the Bay Area where I live. So I just wanted to kind of see what it was like to be a medic there. Um, it's a very unique county. It's where Oakland is, big city, but there's also a lot of rural areas. Um, so it's a very diverse geographic and demographic makeup of the county. Um, and so I was just out there with the medics, um, and then I had the, the, the bright idea, hey, why don't I bring my camera with me and um, see what I can capture. And originally the, the intent was to just document the providers out there 
um, and give the photos to them so they can show their families what they do on a daily basis because, you know, the, the job of a paramedic is hitherto unknown to most people. Um, so it started off kind of innocently enough. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, bam, March 2020, global pandemic struck, um, and it upended the world, and it definitely upended the world of um, pre-hospital medicine. And, um, you know, it would have been so easy to just, uh, you know, when everything got locked down, just hang back, you know, work from home and um, keep myself safe. But I felt compelled, really, to get out there with the crews because I knew they were doing this amazing work um, and putting themselves into such difficult circumstances, exhibiting such resilience in the face of, uh, you know, unprecedented challenges that uh, if I didn't go out there to, to take these photos and document this stuff, a lot of this would have just been a memory for people. And the thing is, as a as a paramedic, as a combat combat medic, uh, you also understand sort of the and I hate to put it this way, but almost the choreography of you know. And you can't anticipate every move that someone's going to make in a situation, but that lends you a lot of uh, you're nimble in that sense, right? Totally nimble. You're, you're actually that's, that's a good way to put it, Patty. Is choreography because it is almost a dance. I mean, especially with highly trained. Um, paramedics and stuff like that. A lot of times you don't even need to talk to your partner. You understand what needs to happen. You both go to work. Um, you're working off each other's vibe and things like that. Now, the other thing that I think really helped out um, with capturing this stuff, well, two things, actually. One was, as you mentioned, yeah, I have a background as a paramedic and as a combat medic. And I think when the crews got to hear that, um, I think that allowed them to drop their guard a little bit. If I was just some random, you know, geek off the street coming in with my camera, they may have been a little bit more standoffish. But Knowing that I'm one of them and I, I share the same experiences that they have, um, I think allowed me to get some of those more intimate moments that you're able to see in photos from the front line. Uh, and then lastly, my um, when I first moved to California, our uh, business that I helped start was focused on commercial sports, uh, documentary things. And so, you know, I have with sports, you have to capture the moment as it's happening. Otherwise, you're going to miss it. and You're not going to have you know, the shot that you need. So right. I, all those factors combined. Um, lended themselves to some images that I hope are really emotionally um, provoking. And absolutely. And with that, you know, one as your with your experience of being a, a medic on the front lines, uh, I think that's well put here that, you know, never before had our first responders truly been on a front line the way they were here with, you know, when you say unprecedented, it's it's not just that, that you know, uh, that no one knew what to expect. I mean, everything, everyone had to come up with solutions in the moment, whether it was the kind of protective gear they're going to wear. And I'm guessing that there was a, a shortage of that as well. Uh, the uncertainty of it. There had to be fear. And, and, you know, these men and women had to step up and step into the fray regardless because they all had a job to do, didn't they? 100%. And, you know, I I use military vernacular and photos from the front lines intentionally to try to kind of tie those two professions together in people's minds of medic and military because the amount of traumatic exposures, there was a study I heard that said, you know, your average paramedic has more traumatic exposures than your average soldier these days. Um, and so um, that's kind of the purpose of the book is to shine a light on that stuff. And you're absolutely right. At the beginning of the pandemic, PPE was being rationed. I mean, the, the supply chain hadn't caught up with the demand for all this personal protective equipment. And, you know, in the book, you can see that paramedics were being issued one N95 mask at the beginning of their shift. And, you know, if they had a patient who they suspected could have COVID, which let's be honest, everyone could potentially have it, you know, because you could be asymptomatic and be a carrier and spreading it and whatnot. And so 
they'd use one mask and then they'd have to call captain or supervisor when they got to the hospital to come and exchange an N95 on a one-to-one basis. Um, and, you know, if I can put air quotes around, you know, routine trauma, you know, think about the, the awful things and the, the trauma that these medics ordinarily have to see, shootings, car accidents, cardiac arrests, child injuries, and things like that. So that's, that's still happening. On top of that, you have this now ballooning weight of this global pandemic where, you know, more and more people are getting sick every day. You don't know who could potentially be infected. Um, you don't have adequate gear. You know, it's it's one thing to go into battle with, with all your body armor and your helmet. It's another thing to go in without anything. Um, and sometimes that was the case. And so just just the, the, the resiliency and the bravery of these folks. I'll tell you one more quick story, Patty. There's, in the book, you can see there's... Um, uh, I was able to capture uh, some paramedics going into nursing homes. Um, I'm sure you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the virus was just burning through nursing homes, and that was the main source of transmission and things like that. So some of these nursing homes, every single person inside it had COVID. All the staff had contracted the bug as well, and almost none of them were able to report for work. So the, the nursing homes were asking the county, hey, can we get medics to come? and help us out and staff these places. And would you believe that these folks who had already been standing on their hind legs fighting for the last, you know, three months uh, in this uncertain, this sea of uncertainty, um, volunteered to walk into these nursing homes and help these folks who are all sick with this virus? I mean, if you have a better example of service before self, you know, I'd love to hear it. How do, uh, what sense did you get? And I know that there were, you know, moments of, uh, I, I would think one first responder having a cupcake that someone in your in your life had made and they were having a, a you know, a little bit of a break. Am I remembering that photo correctly? I think they were eating a cupcake. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, my wife uh, was in pastry chef school at the time. And so between the two of us, we always had something, you know, fresh baked and she would be like, hey. Make sure you bring these in and give them to the crews because she knows, you know, she's, she's heard my stories and she knows the, the, the struggles that paramedics have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, being out there on the streets, you know, with, with just your partner, having something homemade just really can, can make your day. And so that was kind of one of the things I would bring. And it would grease the wheel, too, Patty, you know, throw them a little, uh, throw them a little home-baked good, and that can drop the guard a little bit, too. So, um, yeah, there's the book has shows a lot of the, the kind of heavy moments that, of the last of that year, but there's also some levity in there. And I think a lot of the medics who have longevity in this business are the ones that choose to laugh, you know, because when there's a serious trauma or you lose a patient or something like that, it's hard for the person who has to just, who had to just witness all that and, you know, take all that pressure on of having to try and help these folks. And so in the moment, you almost have a choice of laugh or cry. Yeah. And, you know, lots of times it's tears. And I can't tell you how many times I would be driving home from after a shift. And when I'm in off duty and in the safety of my vehicle and driving home, the tears would just be raining down from what I had to see and experience that day. Um, But on the other hand, there's also those moments where you're able to crack a joke and it breaks the tension and, you know, you're able to kind of get on with your day. And so uh, I think, like I said, I think the medics who choose to laugh, are the ones who have the longevity. Um, and I think I was able to capture a few of those moments, the photos from the front lines, too. 
The, uh, you know, when I, uh, a few years ago, I was talking to a neighbor. I, I live in a community with a lot of first responders, a, a lot of uh, police officers and uh, firefighters and paramedics live in, in my neighborhood. And one of my friends was telling me that there's basically, the way he put it was 10% of his psyche will never come back. And, and he told me some of the things that he's experienced. Uh, one, you know, so it, we talk a lot in this community about mental health support for our first responders. And I also was curious about the cat team launch, which happened in July. Tell us a little bit about this uh, this approach to first responders and going into communities, too. Yeah, totally. I'll speak to your first point about um, the mental health struggles. I mean, I still struggle to this day, Patty. I've been out of the field for many years. I mean, I've been an educator teaching EMTs and stuff like that, but I haven't been in the field in a while, and every day is still a struggle for me. Mm. Uh, some of the things that are you know burned in your mind that you see can just pop up with random stuff, you know, like you smell a barbecue and it reminds you uh, of, you know, something mm-hmm. that someone who got burned or, you know, something like that. Yeah. So, um, that's, that's kind of another purpose of the book is to, is to, you know, our military protects us overseas. Our first responders are the ones who protect us at home. And we need to start thinking about, um, what we can do to take care of medics like we do for our military. You know, the, the book kind of harkens back to the, Battleground photography of World War II, that's kind of the reason why I chose black and white is to do it, is because it's almost like once we started pushing photographers and videographers to the front lines of World War II and they started sending their images back, I think that was the sea change in public opinion when we're like, wow, like this is what these folks go through. Like, we should thank them for their service. We should take care of their health care and their education and, you know, put them on a pedestal. And so um, that's kind of the, the hope of the book in that vein is to get that, that level of exposure and hopefully uh, change public opinion and take care of these folks. Cause you know, someone can serve in the military for four years. Someone can be a paramedic for four years. I can tell you what, Patty, you can see a lot of stuff in four years. Um, and these folks are going to be carrying this for the rest of their life. Yeah. Um, now to your point of the cat team, that was an amazing thing to witness. Um, a lot of times with uh, medicine and whatnot, we're, reactive instead of proactive. Um, and I think the CAT team, which is the community um, assistance team, it's basically an EMT and either a clinical psychologist or a licensed clinical social worker who are out um, essentially roving or in stations um, uh, just prepared for the possibility of a behavioral health crisis, which does not necessitate, necessitate uh, medical care. Uh, a lot of times, what the, what the default option is if someone's having a behavioral crisis is to call the ambulance, the ambulance picks them up, take them to the hospital and they sit in the hospital for a while and maybe get referred services, maybe get counseling, you know, things like that. But um, in essence, it, it can take away a hospital bed from someone having a heart attack or, or something like that. And so um, the hope is that um, with the CAT team, they can respond, you know, usually it's police who request it. Um, they say, hey, the person's stable, um, but they're going to need help. And so the person goes out there and the social worker can evaluate them. They can refer them to services in the community. They can give them numbers and, you know, resources that they can contact um, and, in essence, get them to the care that they need in a more direct route and taking, instead of taking the more circuitous route of ambulance, ER, you know, and that type of a thing. So it's kind of the, I think it's going to be the future of um, mental health care and dealing with behavioral crisis because that's not going anywhere no. and we need new solutions. And this is one of those potential solutions that um, uh, municipalities can adopt I have really enjoyed this conversation. Again, we've been talking to Derek O'Hanley. He's come. He's has a new book called "Photos from the Frontline: A Year on the Streets of Alameda County." Uh, where can folks pick this up? 
You can go to my website, dope.net. That's Derek O'Hanley Publishing, D-O-H-P.net. And you can go throw on a slash books. It'll take you right to the landing page. Uh, or you can look on Amazon. Excellent. So that's dope. Uh, that's D-O-H-P dot net. Uh, and you can find uh, Derek's book there. I'd love to have you back on because I feel like I could just flip this book open and have a conversation about because uh, we didn't even get to the George Floyd uh, protest. So I would love to talk to you about that next time. I've run out of time here. Would you join me again sometime soon, maybe in January? It'd be my honor, Patty. Oh, I, I really appreciate uh, I appreciate the work that you've done here. Uh, I'm grateful for your services. I know many people listening are. We wish you the very best through this holiday season and look forward to having a conversation with you in the next few weeks. Thank you so much for having me, Patty, and happy holidays. Happy holidays, my friend. Be well, and uh, and thank you again for uh, for this incredible uh, historical document that you've created that we can look back at and, and maybe get some view of what it was like for those who truly were on the front lines. Have a great night. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Thank you. Let's take a break here, and I'm going to take one last call. It's last. You know, we should have a segment called Last Call. Jim's on hold. We'll take his call when we come back on WCPT 820. Heartland Signal. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820. All right. Let's wrap this up. Let's take one last call. What a great show. I really love talking to uh, the authors and journalists that we had on in the last hour. Jim, what's on your mind, my friend? Uh, hi, Teddy. Your last guest is one of the beautiful people that make the world go round. Yep. I agree. I, I was going to talk about Savannah because, uh, uh, you know, Warnock was in the Savannah area. And I visited Savannah. If you ever get to Savannah, there's a place in Savannah that you, whoever your friends are, was ever in Savannah, you got to go to the Pink House. The Pink House. What's the Pink that House? Is, it's a restaurant bar that is a must. It's just a must. Okay. And if you're in Savannah, anybody's in Savannah. But, but let me tell you about Savannah. I got time. My, my girlfriend used to watch Savannah. It was one of the weirdest shows you ever want to see in your life. And uh, it was a crazy thing. And I used to visit. Southern cities on vacations, like a week or two weeks or whatever it would be. It was a civil war, none. But anyway, Savannah, uh, a lot of things about Savannah. It's an, big, it's an Irish community. They have one of the biggest St. Patrick's Day parades there. How cool. And some, of the, and some of the streets have stones brought from the Great Hunger in the 1840s. They quarried them in Ireland, put them on a boat, and brought them to Savannah and paved the streets with them. Really? But, yeah. But, and they have a great, uh, a great Irish community there. And they, they got a river walk. It's just, it's a lovely, lovely place. Uh, apparently it's democratic, which is a good thing. But, uh, the Pink House, you gotta, you gotta get to that. Uh, if you're one of your friends or anybody's in Savannah, it's just, it's a, it's just out of this world, uh, place. I will, but, I will uh, mark that down. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, but Savannah's a, a lovely town. Uh, anyway, Terry, I just want to say it's a frivolous thought, but I just want to. I, I appreciate say it. it. Not at all. Thank you so much, Jim. I will look into traveling someday to Savannah. It's on. It's on the. A, it's on the list. 
All right, have a good night. Have a good night, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we are going to head out of here tomorrow. Live broadcast from Tata's Kitchen and Social at 5700 West Irving Park Road. Come on out. Uh, we'll be broadcasting starting at 5. The comedy show is at 8, featuring Bill Gorgo, Lele Mason, Janice Rodriguez, and uh, my friend Anthony Fuentes. They're all my friends. That's why it's called Patty Vasquez and Friends. And we're going to, uh, it's a benefit for kids above all. Have a great night, everybody. Be well, and I'll see you tomorrow.